Hello, and welcome to this Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice Podcast. I'm Richard Prosh. While my saddle part, Paul Bishop, and I ride the trail together for our longer episodes, Speed Listens are occasional short podcast installments wherein we ride solo. Today, I'll be following the four-color panels of the 1960s and 70s that led up to the most popular Western comic book character of all time, DC's elusive, scarred bounty hunter, Jonah Hex. The 1950s saw a thundering herd of Western comic books pour across the American landscape. There were more individual Western titles than ever before, and with radio and television fueling the mix, the media tie-in was born. DC and Atlas knocked out a posse of characters who would live on, albeit meekly, into the 21st century. And Dell Comics plastered the newsstand with photo covers of our favorite TV heroes. The Comics Code Authority was born, and Fawcett Comics, along with Captain Marvel, died. For the first half of the decade, the Old West Cowboy was king of the newsstand, but by 1960, superheroes were making a comeback. By mid-decade, the Batman TV show would help slam the lid on trunkfuls of Western titles, and if they were to survive the Silver Age of comics, Westerns would need to find a new lease on life. In the early 60s, an ambitious young writer-editor and a seasoned artist from the 40s and 50s turned Martin Goodman's Atlas Comics on its ear to create the Marvel Age of Comics. With superhero creations like the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and the Avengers, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby produced a modern mythos almost everybody is familiar with today. Lee might have been a creative genius, but first and foremost, he was a businessman, as was Goodman. Small as it was, there was still a market for westerns, and Atlas had had some of the more popular 50s characters, including Kid Cold Outlaw and the Rawhide Kid. Rawhide's real name was Johnny Bart. He was an orphan of the Indian Wars, raised by his dad's brother, Texas Ranger Ben Bart, near the town of Rawhide, Texas, hence the moniker. Ben was killed by a couple of owl hoots, whereupon Johnny killed the outlaws. He and his horse Apache then took to drifting from place to place, his reputation as a killer always preceding him. Wikipedia offers a nice set of adventure highlights, many of which were retconned into his life story during the 60s, 70s, and beyond. I include them here just to demonstrate the robust legacy of what might seem like a simple cowboy character. In 1869, he became a wanted man. In 1870, he fought the living totem. In 1872, he captured the costumed grizzly with the help of the two-gun kid. He later joined Kid Colt to defeat Iron Mask. In 1873, he met the time-traveling Avengers. In 1874, he met Doc Holliday. In 1875, he helped the Black Panther with Kid Colt and the two-gun kid. In 1876, the Rawhide Kid, Kid Colt, and the Two-Gun Kid faced Red Raven, Iron Mask, and the Living Totem, again with the help of the Avengers. In 1879, he met the Apache Kid, and subsequently became a performer for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, where he remained until 1885. All-Star Western was put out to pasture in 1961, and editor Julie Schwartz was busy revamping the company's superhero line with a space-age feel. With America moved through a turbulent cultural time, Westerns seemed passé, and DC's output of Westerns would stay firmly corralled with Tomahawk and a few others until the last couple years of the decade. At Dell Comics, the partnership with Western Publishing ended in 1962, and Western took most of its licensed properties. Along with their own original material, Western created its own imprint, Gold Key Comics. Most of the talent who had worked on the Dell line continued at Gold Key, as did the Lone Ranger title, until 1977. Charlton Comics' low production costs enabled it to continue to produce titles like Billy the Kid and the Cheyenne Kid, but they struggled as well. 
Then, when it seemed like Western comics would simply fade away into the sunset, a series of revisionist movies galloped across the silver screen. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, Ombre starring Paul Newman, The Hour of the Gun with James Garner, and a horde of movies that came to be known as the Spaghetti Westerns dominated the box office. The Western genre was reborn with less nostalgia and more raw humanity, less romanticism and more grit. At Marvel, editor Roy Thomas and artist Gary Friedrich took note and repackaged the stories of an old magazine Enterprise Comics character, The Ghost Rider, rebranded briefly as The Knight Rider, then The Phantom Rider. Carter Slade was the first to wear the mask and debuted in Ghost Rider No. 1, February 1967. He wore a phosphorescent white costume, full face mask, cape, and white Stetson. Slade received his outfit and his white horse from a Native American medicine man. After Slade's death in Western Gunfighters No. 7, January 1972, his sidekick, Jamie Jacobs, became the second Phantom Rider. Around the same time in 1968, Carmine Infantino, editorial director of DC Comics, and his editor, Joe Orlando, came up with the name and basic premise of Batlash, a loner whose family had been killed by outlaws. Sheldon Mayer wrote the first appearance in Showcase No. 76, August 1968, and Sergio Aragonos of Mad Magazine fame helped flesh out the character. Dennis O'Neill said, Batlash was a charming anti-hero, or as close to a charming anti-hero as comics ever came, at least the way we did him. In subsequent handlings, Batlash became a churlish anti-hero. Sergio and I tried to make him in the tradition of the charming rogue. Bat had a conscience, represented by the flower in his hat, which he inevitably threw away whenever he was doing something ratty. Bat's own series only lasted seven issues, but he returned in future anthology titles like DC Special and Weird Western Tales. Notably, in 2008, Bat Lash appeared in a self-titled six-issue miniseries from D.C., written by Aragonos, with dialogue by our friend Western novelist Peter Branvold, art by John Severin, and covers by Walt Simonson. You can find the series reprinted in 2008's trade paperback, Bat Lash, Guns and Roses. As the revisionist trend staked its claim on the comic book rack, DC once again revived All-Star Western in 1970, running 11 bi-monthly issues before changing its title and format to Weird Western Tales in 1972. All-Star Western featured old characters like Pow Wow Smith, a Sioux Indian sheriff detective in a small western town, El Diablo, a bank teller named Lazarus Lane, struck by lightning and revived by a native medicine man, and a fairly forgettable character called the Outlaw. Onto this open range, a scarred bounty hunter appeared. Issue 10 of All-Star Western, February-March 1972, introduced Jonah Hex, created by writer John Albano and artist Tony D. Zuniga. Jonah Hex headlined the comic when it changed its name to Weird Western Tales with Issue 12, July 1972, and he continued in a starring role until number 38, February 1977, when Scalp Hunter, a Native American hero, took over. Albano cast Hex as the enigmatic loner, a universally feared gunfighter who appeared on the scene to save the day, and though De Zuniga's gritty art was suitable to the revisionist times, the stories were fairly standard fare. With his entries, Enter Michael Flesh began to hone Hex into the steel-edged, fully-rounded character he would eventually become. It was Flesher who wrote the tagline, He was a hero to some, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. By 1977, Jonah Hex had moved to his own title, retrieving Flesher for the scripting with art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Ernie Chan, De Zuniga, Dick Ayers, and others. This run lasted 92 issues. It was in one of these first issues of his own series that I first ran into Jonah Hex, and I was immediately smitten for two reasons. First, in the mid-70s, I was at that age a lot of comics readers get to. I had outgrown the funny animal books, knew all about the superheroes, and was looking for something different, something more grown up, and I don't mean in a prurient way think of adult comics today. 
At 11 years old, I was reading Ray Bradbury and Robert Block and vintage Western stories by O. Henry and Bret Hart. I called out my comics to similarly put up or be consigned to the back end of a slow-moving mule train to nowhere. Jonah Hex answered the call, and that leads to the second reason I took to the character. He was so different from the posse of white-bred cowboy characters the comics had always given us. Hex isn't just a faction anti-hero who fought for the Confederates before denying its justification, but he looks like hell, like he was pulled south through a north-going mule, as my grandma might say. Branded with a scalding tomahawk, the mark of the demon, by an Apache chief for breaking the rules and killing the chief's son while he was at it, Hex wears a grim, mutilated visage on the right side of his face, a wide-open, wild eye, a scarred mapwork of craggy peaks and valleys, an impossible strip of connecting tissue that spans an exposed jaw. It was just the sort of creepy, cool artwork I still liked, with just the sort of thought-inducing scripting that I longed for. Jonah Woodson Hex was born November 1st, 1838, in Missouri. A victim of physical abuse by his father, the old man finally sold him into slavery to an Apache tribe. One day, Hex saved the chief from a lion attack. In gratitude, Hex was adopted into the family, but his brother, Noah Tante, grew jealous. The enmity would fester, even while Hex was away fighting the Civil War. He first joined the U.S. Army as a cavalry scout, something I was surprised to learn because, up until that time, I'd only seen him dressed in his familiar ratty grays. After shifting his loyalties and meeting a fellow soldier named Jeb Turnbull, he began to question the Confederacy's treatment of slaves. Lincoln's announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation in September 1862 forced Hex to realize he could no longer support the South. It wasn't long after the war that Hex revisited the Apache village where he grew up and faced off with his adopted brother. It was after killing Noah Tante that he received the scarring face injury that would become his awful trademark as he wandered the West, a grim bounty hunter always on the prod. Most of the Jonah Hex adventures I read as a kid were solid, enjoyable Western adventure fare. A lot of them had Hex tracking down somebody he knew in the war, and the Turnbull name haunted him throughout the series. The perennial loner, Hex would make friends, find lovers, experience the companionship of a wolf named Iron Jaws, even get married to Mei Ling in issue number 45, only to lose those connections in the end and move on. With the solo series, Flesher instituted two differences from the character's original run in Weird Western. First, there were threads of continuity that continued to build that backstory I've alluded to, and eventually, a full-blown origin was born. Second, Hex earned a handful of recurring villains, like El Papagayo, who escaped his blazing pistols in order to return. Jonah's marksmanship with single-action revolvers was nearly superhuman, as was his ability to survive mountains of physical and psychological torment. An exceptional tracker, he was also a ruthless and prolific killer, with the redeeming trait of a personal code of honor to protect the innocent. In other words, the only people he killed were people who needed killing. From 1977 until 1985, Jonah Hex rode the newsstand range, and while I'll admit to drifting in and out of the series, it was always good to see him standing sentry on the rack at the corner drugstore where I bought my comics. Then the mid-1980s saw a shakeup at DC, and a company-wide event called Crisis on Infinite Earths wasn't kind to our hero. Unlike the rawhide kid at Marvel, Hex never worked well as a superhero crossover character, and his appearance in the crisis was a sad arbinger of things to come. Too many times DC had used the gimmick of time travel to pair Hex with the Batman and other characters from the Justice League of America. While I can understand the desire to create such stories from a financial, and even a creative point of view, maybe, they never worked out well. In 1985, things went completely off the rails. Jonah's title was canceled, and the powers that be offered up a new book, simply called Hex, where the character is whisked off into a dystopian 21st century to act out a sort of Mad Max scenario. It was awful. Hex would return to his western roots a few more times in the 90s and after the turn of the century, notably in a series of Vertigo miniseries created by Joe Lansdale and Tim Truman. Two-Gun Mojo, 1993, 
Riders of the Worm and Such, 1995, and Shadows West, 1999. Each of these has its merits, but stretched the weird western subgenre to a, a gratuitous and almost comical breaking point. As a rule, I didn't really enjoy them. As most fans certainly know, a live-action movie was released in 2010 with Josh Brolin in the lead role as Jonah Hex and John Malkovich as Quentin Turnbull. The less said about that heinous affair, the better. Jonah Hex has been killed off more than once in the context of his comic book adventures and in the real world of entertainment, but he always returns, neither a resurrected angel nor demon, but a lone and lonely hombre roaming the vast, untamed American West. And while I still pay a passing interest in his career, I'll always consider the original run of Weird Western Tales and 92 issues of Jonah Hex to be the core of his legend. Thanks for listening to this exclusive speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out the Six Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Till next time, be kind to one another, be kind to yourself. Keep your comic books bagged and boarded, your bookshelves free of silverfish, and as always, keep your eyes on the Western horizon. Adios. (laughs) 